Well, I want to start off uh, by talking about um, change, and not just any change. I want to talk about transformational change, and maybe the best way to talk about this is to do it in light of um, then and nows. And so I have a few images that I thought would uh, be worth looking at. And so these are people who have gone through radical transformation changes. I'll give you a hint. They are big and popular rock stars. Anyone want to take a guess at this teen pop star? Katy Perry, who now looks radically different. Uh, amazing what um, a makeup artist can do. How about this one? Oh. Uh, uh, no, no, that would not be the 50s version of David Sunday. That would be uh, someone who has held, held court in major stadiums for decades. No, that would be this guy, Mick Jagger. I mean, then and now, right? That's like teenage Mick. And the one thing that you can see are the lips are still purse. Uh, who else? Uh, anyone? Anyone? Adele cleans up pretty well because you see her now, you're like, okay, so that's like running to the store, running errands, Adele, and I just won another award, Adele. Who else? Okay. Kinda, except you probably will be surprised to know that this is a guy who's had a really transformational experience and then another transformational experience as if you can become a butterfly twice. This would be Alice Cooper who has had a, a kind of a rebirth in his own faith and dropped some mascara along the way and became uh, kind of a, what feels like a normal guy. Uh, and then let's see, who else we got? Anyone? I mean, yeah, before Halle Berry, there was Whitney Houston uh, and, and she did quite well for herself. Who's next? Anyone, anyone? Anyone hail from Detroit? The real Slim Shady? I mean, come on. Um, so the point is to grow up looking like tough guy. Uh, go from cute preppy to tough. Uh, who's next? Queen B, come on. Uh, all the ladies in the house. Okay, wh what do we got next? Couple more. Anyone? New Jersey, New Jersey in the house, what? Who we got? He was living on a prayer back then. Back then. Uh, T-Swizzle. Oh, you got it right away. Yeah. Um, giving country music a bad name because she's so far from it now. Uh, anyone, who, who's this little mobster? Yes. There we go. Still, still rocking the hat. Drake. Him and his part minority ownership of uh, the Toronto Raptors. Look at, there's no trophy in that picture though. Uh, anyone? Johnny Cash before he did Folsom Prison. So big changes, right? Uh, a couple more. Let's just look at more. Um, this was a concert I've been to. If you were um, in college, maybe in the 90s, uh, you had a bromance with him. Uh, and uh, he started out looking really preppy. And then he looked like this. Stone Temple Pilots lead singer Scott Weiland, the now deceased, unfortunately, Scott Weiland. But you talk about major change. Uh, is, is, do we have anyone else? Two more. Okay. Come on. A sharp. <laughs> it, it's a girl. 
<laughs> How about Mariah Carey? Uh, and then last one, this, if, if you want to like claim any Austin legitimacy, you better know this. Willie. Willie. Willie Nelson. Back when mom was still doing his hair before the Briggs kicked in. So the point is this. We know that change is inevitable. And if you look back at your pictures and if you thought about what you were into, say, in high school or five years ago, ten years ago, you'd go, man, there's been a lot of change in my life. I mean, it's, it's clear when you, have, uh, you watch kids grow up and you go through yearbooks or you even think about your own life. You, if you kept a diary or some kind of journal, if, uh, w- whatever the case might be, change seems to be inevitable. The question is always in what direction? So I want to talk about transformational change because that involves something more than just habits and behaviors. It involves something a a lot more internal. Uh, And so every stage of life that we go through, every decade of life that we go through, every job opportunity that we go through, every um, kind of uh, season of life always represents like this new skin or an old skin that we're gonna shed and it's gonna become something different. Whether you're a fan of change or not, whether you crave the familiar or not, the one thing that's gonna happen is our lives are gonna evolve and I wanna make a case for being a little bit more intentional with transformational change in a good way. And so, um, because the point is change isn't always healthy and if we're not careful, we will carry the wounds, we will carry the offenses, we will carry some of the bad habits, we will carry the fears, we will carry the biases into the next season of life. And what we realize is that what started out as sort of a gnawing thing or just a bad habit becomes later in life a a profound disability or a limp maybe in a, in, in a physical or a, an emotional blind spot, maybe in, a, in, a, a, in an addiction. And those little things tend to grow into something more pronounced. And just looking at some of the different characters, not all of these rock stars' lives turned out to be success and sustainable. It became something more detrimental. And so um, I wanna talk about what some of those things that we might hold on to as we, go, as we grow and be able to shed some of those. Now, What the prophets represent, we've been talking about some of the minor prophets for the last several weeks, the prophets always represented an interruption, sort of a hand up, you're going this way, and there was a needed interruption, and it was always a corporate interruption. We have a very individualized perspective, our relationship with God, but when the Hebrews talked about it, it was always a collective distinction. And the prophets were there to be part of God's transformational process that they were going through as a nation. And the prophets would hold their hands up and remind them of who they are in light of who God is. God's faithful, so you should be faithful. God is generous, so you should be generous. God is forgiving, so you ought to be forgiving. And there was this invitation to something way more transformational, but it always felt countercultural. So I would say we need the prophets and a non-profit church is dead. You see what I did with that? Just just trying to be creative with that. But my point is that we don't often like accountability. We certainly don't like correction. We don't like inconvenience and discomfort. 
And this is how God is trying to get a hold of us and be part of a transformational process. Because the one thing that we realize is that you can't go through a spiritual transformational process without struggle, and maybe even without failure. This is the most fertile soil for re restoration, for redemption, for resurrection. And so the prophets are instrumental in the people of God being interrupted and saying, you were living like this, but you're called to live like this. Don't forget, you're the people of God. You're the light of the world. So shine like light. Be light. For God's sakes, be light. So today I want to look at the very shortest book, the very shortest collection, the announcement by the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is like a chapter. There's not like chapters and chapters, there's just a few verses. And Obadiah steps up and he has a word for the people of God, but it's not directly at Israel. Here's what's really significant. And in light of what our culture's going through, I think this is a really timely word. And since I imagine that none of us actually read Obadiah this week, let me just go ahead and spell out a little bit of what's happening. Obadiah was written to the people of Edom, E-D-O-M. Who are the Edomites? Well, I'll give you a hint. They're relatives of the Israelites, but there is a huge divide based on a sibling rivalry. Edom came from Esau. Esau was the twin brother. Anyone? Anyone? So you have Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. He's going to be the father of many nations. And he gave birth to Isaac. Remember the kind of the 25 years in waiting? Well, then Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, the deceiver, stole the birthright from his older brother. I mean, it was highway robbery, full deception. And if you follow Jacob's life later, you, you see that, that Jacob had this breaking point, a physical breaking point where he wrestled with this angel all night long because he didn't want to let go because he had had this kind of come to Jesus moment. But the brother, Esau, never got over it. And Esau, as a part of this promise of God, had his own like huge tribe of people, you know, because there was going to be descendants as numerous as the stars, and that became the Edomites. Except through generations, they had held the grudge. Through generations, they had practiced unforgiveness. Through generations, they had cultivated a socially acceptable prejudice against the Israelites, so much so that they were participating in their abuse that they were using them and selling Israelites as slaves. This was their relative people, and they're like, oh, no way. Do you remember what happened? Well, it could have been generations removed, but they wouldn't forget. What we call this is systemic sin, and we live in a culture of systemic sin. It's called racism. And you're like, well, I'm not a racist. No, but you probably have some cultural biases that you didn't mean to inherit, but living where you lived, growing up where you grew up, you were not exposed enough to people maybe of a different class or a different culture or a different race. And so it creates an uncertainty and maybe you had one or two or a limited number of experiences with, with, 
one of those people. And what happens is, and if you just look at racism as in America, it became a systemic problem that I would call a sin. And so now we have this huge immigration debate and a lot of people afraid and we're hearing language of invasion, which is just inciting fear. This is not the economy of God because what God does is he looks at all of creation as precious. And yet we have been enculturated in a society where without even meaning to, we just adopted some of those own biases, those own prejudices. It's, it's kind of hard not to. And so there's this fear that we're called to overcome. And you know what's interesting is when we're called to be light, it's not just light in our neighborhood. And if you're like me, my neighborhood looks really homogenous. We're called to be the light into the world. And what the church is invited to do is begin to cross socioeconomic divides. It's called to, to kind of help the whole city prosper. That's what it actually means to love our neighbors. And so this is, I think, really important for the people of God. Now, when Obadiah stands up and he starts calling out the Edomites, I'm sure they weren't really too thrilled about it, but listen to what he says. Um, and, and they hated the Israelites, but he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, saying, who can bring us down? Kind of like we've experienced some level of success, we've experienced some level of autonomy, we're providing for ourselves, how could we ever tumble? So let's go ahead and keep increasing the debt ceiling. As, as if it's infinite. So it kind of feels like America, like we're the, we're, the, we're the global military superpower. We're the wealthiest nation on earth. We had advanced technology. And yet, this is all source of pride. And we can receive this sort of word from the Lord that feels really timely for today, that will be our demise, both individually and collectively. Because I can personalize all of this. I can kind of make a case for what makes my life sustainable. I can make a case for how I deserve the goodness of my life. I, I, went, to, I went to school nine years after high school. I, I have advanced degrees. I don't really need God to fill my pantry and put food on my table and put a roof over my head, except that I need to realize that God is the source of all of it. It's very easy for me to kind of rely on my own strength and my own sort of wit and my own intelligence and my own emotional intelligence and my, my charm and somehow I can make it all happen. And, and yet that's me, that's not necessarily Christ in me. And this is where it gets really personal. So I think Obadiah is speaking collectively, but I can personalize this in short order because I like to trust me except that's really finite. And so, and then he goes on to the say this to the Edomites, and this is where in verse 15 he says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. He's not just talking about Edom, because we all have a tendency, all individuals, all is, is feeling like we've kind of arrived at this place. But he says, as you have done, it will be done to you. And the fascinating part is this, Obadiah prophesies over all of Edom that says, you're going to be erased from history if you keep up the self sufficiency. You're going you're gonna to be annihilated. It will be your demise. It will be your doom if you keep up with the I'm the center of my own life routine. And guess what? In a hundred years, Babylon conquered them. And who among us has ever heard 
of the Edomites. We're not talking about the land of Edom today. We're still talking about the land of Israel, but we're not talking about the Edomites. So God's prophetic word came true because of their own self-centeredness, their own sort of self-sufficiency. This is God's invitation to come and be in relationship with him. And so when we talk about discrimination, when we talk about prejudice, we're, we're talking about the evils of society that become so socially acceptable. And so I would simply talk about this kind of prejudice, this generational thing that had happened with the Edomites and think, how has that impacted my life? Because there's always going to be that group of people that you're unfamiliar with, that you might have had a bad experience with, that makes you uncomfortable. And then you want to build a straw man argument that says, I've met one or two or three or five, and so they're all kind of like that. And so prejudice is simply knowing or unknowingly developing a bias against a person or a group. And I would say all of us become really vulnerable to that. And so the anecdote, in my opinion, is to say, how can we be intentional to cross social divides, to re-engage with God's creation, and maybe even build some inroads with people who um, are very different from my own? So one of the ways we talk about community isn't something that we create. Community is discovering what we already have in common because the truth of the matter is, is we all bear the image of God. So can we do the hard work of finding what we already might have in common with someone who looks and seems different than us? This is a really important word for our society today, for our division today. Can you find friendship with a liberal Democrat? Can you find something you like with a conservative Republican? Can you find fellowship with someone who's an adulterer? Can you find someone like fellowship or, or common ground with someone who came from sub-Saharan Africa? Can you find someone who worships at a different altar? Even though you don't feel like that's the pathway to salvation, is there something that you common ground that you can find? And I would suggest there is. And so a lot of the way we've tried to do that is through just acts of service, but also acts of receiving. So let's be friends with immigrants. Let's try and engage people whose needs are simply different than our own, but recognizing that we're all in a really needy place. This is what our rhythm of compassion would say. And so um, I think the concern that I have is what will be left after years of holding on to your fear? What will be left over years of holding on to a grudge? What will be left after generational sort of wounds that get passed on? This, this is what we're dealing with, and it's called systemic sin, and it's not anything new. But Obadiah is saying, warning, this will only lead to your demise. I know it's hard to make yourself vulnerable. I know it's intimidating to put yourself out there into different and uncomfortable environments. Annika is started working at Crepe Crazy. It's a, it's a sweet and savory crepe, uh, 
crepe shop down on South Lamar, but it's owned and operated by the deaf community. And when she was hired, and she can sign fluently, and so it's a real fun opportunity, but she was instructed that you're not supposed to engage with them. Um, We're kind of known as the deaf establishment. It's kind of our thing. So when you go up to order, there's a lot of nodding and smiling and pointing at a picture menu, and that's how you exchange. But if she came and you greeted her, she would give you a wave, and she would start doing her sign language abla thing. Well, a couple comes up who are this very attractive 20-something couple, and they do the polite nodding, pointing, waving, and she's typing in their order, and the guy looks at his girlfriend and is like, what's the point? What are they trying to prove? <laughs> I don't get it. As if deaf people are trying to make some statement by having their own establishment. Just the kind of, I mean, he's saying just no filter because he doesn't think that she can hear him. And he's just being really honest But actually what he's being is really uncomfortable because he doesn't know sign language and he doesn't like dealing with people who can't hear him. And all of a sudden he's putting in a place. I'm saying now he's in a place to experience something transformational. And someone ought to call him out. And it was all she could do to not want to say, I can hear you, you know, uh, let's talk about that. But I think this is what happens all the time when we engage people who are just different than us. And I'm not saying you should be best friends with everyone in the world, but what I am saying is, as an image bearer of God, we can do the hard work of finding what we already have in common. That's what it means to be the light of the world. And so when Obadiah stands up and he says, you people, I wanna warn you, this will be your demise. You will be erased from all of history if you don't get your hearts right. You have so much antagonism and it didn't even actually happen to you. It happened to generations before between two brothers. And maybe some of you could tell stories that have just gone on in your family from generation where it was just offense, offense and now they're those distant relatives that, that you know of but maybe don't interact with. My concern is what that feels like when we come into community and when we, when we let relationships go unreconciled, when we let misunderstandings linger a little too long, when we hold on to offenses and keep in mind the Edomites were totally justified. And I think that's one of the most crippling things. They offended me, I'm waiting for them. But do you know what God cares about? Right relationship. No, but the Edomites, they were justified. It was Jacob who violated them. It was Jacob who stole from them. And so they're just playing the role of a victim for generations. But look at what it got them. And so he's sticking up his hands and he's going, transformation is possible. But if you're not careful, it'll lead to your demise. Night and day. And that's what's so hard is because we hold on to our wounds because they become so familiar to us. But it's actually like a muscle. Just like we talk about spiritual gifts, the more you exercise that gift, whatever that gift is, um, it'll grow stronger. You'll get better. But just like a muscle of resentment, the longer you're practicing unforgiveness, the harder it is to let it go. That, That thing works both ways, unfortunately. And that's what he's saying. And so I'm, I'm suggesting that despite our upbringing or despite our surroundings, we need to understand what was the world that God intended? And the world that God intended always started with 
all of my creation is precious. They don't act precious, and neither do I. All of my creation are my children, except they act like spoiled children. They act like entitled kids. They act like bullies on the playground, right? This is our experience, and I'm not calling you, but I, I, I think there's a way that we can begin to view the world that God intended. Uh, and so regardless of who's wronged us or how culture influences, God holds all of his creation as his own. Um, and so for as much as a person or a group is a turnoff or people are flawed, they, like me, are in equal need of the grace of God. And so here's where it gets personal, is that I would say it this way. I don't think, try as we might, we can really compartmentalize our woundedness. If you have wounds that you have suffered, offenses that are justifiably offensive, they carry themselves into every new relationship. If there's something traumatic uh, that happens in our growing up, you walk into every new relationship, that wound stays with you. You go into a new work environment, there's still going to be a, maybe a new authority issue, but it's just a different face. Whatever the wound is, it stays with us, and it has a way of permeating every other relationship. And so there, the invitation then is always wholeness, confession, repentance. God, will you heal those memories? Will you heal that relationship? That's the invitation we get. And so I just want to simply close with something that I think summarizes a lot of what the, uh, the prophets were doing. And so we talked about there's these minor prophets that seem kind of obscure. And I've wanted to spend some time just looking at the uniqueness of their message. Because some people call out, uh, they have a different theme and it's a different unique calling. But then there's the major prophets and they're just a little bit more long-winded. But the, Ezekiel had this picture of re restoration. And so if you read through the book of Ezekiel, it's quite long. But when you get to Ezekiel 37, it's the picture that we all need to see why the prophet is always trying to interrupt us, why the Spirit of God brings conviction on our lives, why it's so important for us to be in healthy community so that people can help us see our blind spots, even though we might have a defensive streak in us. And it's the vision that he had of a valley of dry bones. And the vision is so pointed. He looks out over this valley and it's just skeleton valley. And what happens in this vision is it starts coming to life and there's the rattling of the bones. I mean, my quiet times aren't quite like Ezekiel's, but imagine seeing this whole valley, this whole vast army of skeletons start to take form and they start to assemble into the form of skeletons, into the form of now bearing flesh. And the picture of God's restoration, the picture of hope, where we understand where the story is going is God's restoration of all things. And this is the promise, not just then, it's a promise for now. And this is the promise, the hope that we can live into. Let's go to that slide so you can see what he talks about. And he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. And this is what the sovereign Lord says, look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. There are things that have robbed you of joy, robbed you of life, robbed you of confidence, robbed you of self-worth, and God is breathing this word because he wants to breathe life into your dry bones. This is what the prophetic word is all about. This is what he's constantly trying to do. Not bring judgment as if there's no hope for eternity. He's saying, I want to bring restoration. And if you don't heed my prompt and my interruption, transformation will happen, but it won't always be resurrection. 